I guess I wasn't paying attention last week. I didn't realize that Psalm 139 was our memory verse. <laughs> Oops. So either we didn't do it last week, or I just wasn't paying attention. Shame on me. Well, that is the subject of our sermon this morning. That is our text. <clears throat> and a, title, a sermon that I titled, God's Thoughts About Our Thoughts About God. So if you want to turn there to the 139th Psalm, or read it up on the... Well, I'll read the entire Psalm. So my emphasis will be in the first through the 13th verse, and then the 23rd and the 24th verse. O Lord, you have searched and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uppermost, uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. For night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I am awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. The importance of our thought life. 17th century French philosopher René Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. And I won't torture our minds trying to understand what is meant by that statement or the question Descartes struggled with that set him out on the search that led to that conclusion. I do say, however, that we can turn that statement around to read, I am, therefore I think. We are constantly thinking. Science in no way has unanimously concluded how many thoughts a day we have. Some argue 25,000, some would say 50,000, some 70,000 thoughts a day. But we are always thinking. We think about the present. We think about the past. We think about the future. To some extent, we try to do all three at once at times. We can hardly get through prayer without some kind of intrusive thought breaking in, yes? 
A thought that has nothing to do with our prayer. Nearly every action is preceded by a thought or thoughts. It may be the first time we've had that thought and we impulsively act instead of thinking more about it. Or maybe an action taken because of a pattern of thinking or repetition of thoughts we have all the time, and then we finally act. Many, an adulterous act is carried out only after many thoughts about adultery have first been entertained. We have heard at times, think before you speak, or you better think twice before you do that. Or we do or say something entirely crazy and someone inevitably says, what were you thinking? We also have a vast treasure of stored thoughts that we call memories. In his book, The Biology of Sin, the author writes, the human brain contains approximately 100 billion neurons. It is 75% water and uses electricity and chemicals to form and store thoughts, feelings, and memories. The brain uses 20% of the body's energy, but makes up only 2% of the body's weight. When awake, the human brain can generate up to 25 watts of power, enough to illuminate a light bulb. Information travels through its neural pathways at speeds of 268 miles per hour. Humans have the most complex brain of any living creature God has created on earth. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. An article in Scientific American reads, The human brain consists of about one billion neurons. Each neuron forms about 1,000 connections to other neurons, amounting to more than a trillion connections. Neurons combine so that each one helps with many memories at a time, exponentially increasing the brain's memory storage capacity to something closer to around 2.5 petabytes, or a million gigabytes. For comparison, if your brain worked like a digital video recorder in a television, 2.5 petabytes would be enough to hold 3 million hours of TV shows. You would have to leave the TV running continuously for more than 300 years to use up all that storage. So that's the biological. But of course, there's more to us than our biology. The mind is not reducible strictly to scientific analysis, right? A thought has no weight or no smell. We're also mind and spirit, which I'll touch upon. So we begin, I suppose, to get a sense of the role that thought plays in our existence. And it comes as no surprise, then, that the Bible has much to say about our thought life, and the importance of thinking, and in addition to love the Lord with all your mind. A few scriptures that tell us the importance of our thought life. 2 Timothy 2.7 Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. What Paul is saying is scripture. So reading scripture involves, or should involve, thinking a lot. You think about what you read when you're reading scripture. 1 Corinthians 14.20 Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. So maturing as a Christian, in part, is a process of having our thoughts conformed to reality. To the way things actually are. So that our thoughts are making connections with the world and ourselves as God defines those things. And then in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. These are the things that our thought life 
are intended for. It's why we have thoughts. We abuse the gift of thought when we think otherwise. The importance of this psalm to our thought life. The psalm is a wonderfully devotional classic psalm, as it were, which can set our reflections on God's omniscience. That is, the God is everywhere all at once, entirely present. But it's far more than devotional as well. The psalm informs us that God knows about our thoughts. All of them. And the psalm likewise demonstrates that God has thoughts about our thoughts. And particularly our thoughts about God. The psalm compels us to think about our own thought life. David is ruminating over his thoughts about God. And God's thoughts about David. And God's thoughts about David's thoughts. Including how God thinks about David. Since we have to use our thoughts to think about our thoughts, we really need God's thoughts on how we have to think. We need His power to get our thoughts right. We need His grace. In short, we need the gospel of God to think right thoughts about God and everything else that God allows us to think about. Because right deeds follow from right thoughts. And the psalm offers all of that. As God's people... If indeed we call him Lord from a sincere heart, we are safe and confident knowing that he has searched us and known us as David starts. You have searched me, you have known my heart. And that is how David begins his thoughts towards God. Knowing that God has been thinking about David. That's how David begins his prayer. I know that God's been thinking about me. And I wonder if verse 1 is a reference to his kingship. When I sit down and rise up, Maybe a reference to his life on the throne of Israel. If so, this is the very thing to which God has called David to. David knows God observes him and knows his thoughts in that most important capacity that God has set him in as king. David is aware of God's sovereignty in David's rule. Likewise, we can know God is watching over and thinking about that which concerns us so that the Lord can make us complete in that which he has called us to. It's good to be aware that God is aware. I think that in David's life, as well as in our own, we sense the distance between ourselves and God at times. At times, the way we're accustomed to knowing his presence and seeking his face no longer bring that awareness of his presence. It's like it's not working anymore. And those are difficult times. In the 22nd Psalm, David prayed, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There's none to help. In the 13th Psalm, David prays, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And yet here, David acknowledges that God knows him and has searched him out. And I think we can relate to David's experience quite often. It's profitable to realize that while God may not seem to be acting, we are indeed on his mind. We're his thoughts. And people offer that sentiment at times, right? When somebody dies or something. It's particularly non-Christian folks do this who just need something to say. They'll say, you're in our thoughts. And, and God surely says the same thing with much more meaning. And, and he puts his entire godness, the entire godness of God, into the consolation that he gives by letting us know he thinks about us. The scripture tells men, husbands, it tells husbands, husbands, dwell with your wives in an understanding way. Or dwell with them according to knowledge. 
What an example we have of God doing this in His church. You know, it's a, it's a difficult thing for a man to have to spend sufficient time and thought to understand his wife, to dwell with her in an understanding way, to know, in a sense, what her thoughts are. And then, we are called at times to know what her thoughts are without her telling us that. In fact, we're guilty if we don't. God knows our path. The well one says, God, you know my path. You search out my path in my lying down. That's the, the well-worn thought life that we go through over and over again. The directions our thoughts are going, our, our intellectual path, it's seeing a well-worn path in the forest from far above. Perhaps you've been a participant in these, um, these corn mazes that usually pop up around harvest Halloween time, right? And so, navigate through paths made in the cornfield, right? And, and many of them just lead to nowhere. But they often feature a sort of observation tower from which uh, there's an observer who can see all the wrong turns and the same mistakes that the walkers keep on making. And say, that idiot just keeps on going that way. He goes around, yeah, but he keeps running into that same wall. And he can sort of instruct them with a walkie-talkie. You know, you've got to stop taking that turn. I think God is like that in our thought life. He's got that, he's got that position. He can see that well-worn path that we continue to make. All the time, our thought path. And that's because, as the psalmist says, David says, God's well acquainted with our ways. Our thoughts and our patterns. Our thoughts can be a confused web. So we have no idea how we got there. How did I get to this thought, you know? When did those thoughts initially go astray? And then how did we build other thoughts on that initial wrong thought? It's It's a tough place. But since God knows how our thoughts work and what our thought patterns of thought are, He can come and get us in our thoughts and bring us back to right thinking. In Adam said, the mind is a terrible thing to waste. Sometimes the mind is just simply a terrible thing. Here we can also learn the amazing grace and patience, I think, and the long-suffering character of God who knows what we will say as David says, before the word is even on our tongue. He knows the word we speak before it even travels from our heart to our tongue. And he knows altogether the thought that comes before the word. He thinks before we speak, even if we don't think before we speak. Although, in, in truth, we do, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. We may give thought at any given moment as to what we're going to say, But the thoughts we have stored up for some time often issue forth in words, even if we're quiet initially. The tongue very well remembers what the mind has been thinking about. The tongue has a memory of its own. So the gossip or slander we may indulge in, to some extent, is the full-grown fruit of the thought seed that we planted some time ago. And, And even so, knowing this, and here when we experience God's grace, God doesn't strike us mute before we say the words. Or perhaps God, in His grace, prevents us or keeps us from sinning by intervening somehow before the thought becomes a word or a deed in His mercy. I don't know how many things I've been prevented from saying or thinking. How God might distract me from thoughts that I ought not be thinking. Well, I bet there's a lot of them. Because David says, you had me in behind and before, and you lay your hand on me. So, 
Knowing what we're thinking, God lays His hand to lead us in the direction He has in mind. So we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil that manufactures our wrong thoughts. So much that could be said in Scripture has to be said about our thoughts first. This is where so much that begins. So much... We really need to think about our thought life. I, I get this loudly and clearly in this psalm. You and I can see in this text and think about it together, but we confess with David, don't we? This is an amazing thing. This, this knowledge is too wonderful. It's, it's too high. We, we cannot attain it. And so I ask, the, and I ask the text, what knowledge is too high? What exactly does that mean? All right? Remember, that's, that's going to be your favorite question when you come to the Bible. What did you say? This is what you've got to ask the Bible. What are you saying? So what knowledge is too wonderful? And I think we could understand this in two ways and, and, and profit from either. We um, cannot attain to, we cannot possibly wrap our minds around the power of the all-thinking, all-knowingness of God. We can state it as a reality, but it's too high. It, it's too amazing. Uh, we're again confronted with our finitude, right? We're trying to describe infinite from finite. There are so many things that we can state where we have no actual sort of knowledge, you know, about it. Um, the people that I work with have learned, before you call me with a computer problem, reboot. Okay? Because that takes care of about 90% of the problems. There's not a lot of job security in that, but reboot. Okay? Now, they know what that means. Oh, yeah, I know what it is to reboot. But most people, I find, uh, e even the younger generation that is pretty fluent in technology, don't really understand the inner machinations of operating systems and how they relate to the, uh, how they relate to the, uh, to the main chip. You know, how the heat sink works in these things. How all these things... So we could say reboot, and people know what that... They, they say it, but they have no idea what's going on. It's, it's just too high for them. They can't attain to it. And the same thing, I think, can be said about this knowledge of God, which ought to cause us to be reverent. All of God's attributes cause humility in us, don't they? I mean, if you think about any attribute of God for long enough, it ought to make you a little bit more humble, make me a little bit more humble, when I see in comparison what that attribute is like in me. Well, perhaps David means... God understands my ways and my thoughts in ways that I just can't. Which, which drives him, as it does in other Psalms, to wonder, how could God have dealings with such creatures as this? It, it builds David's confidence, and it can ours, to think often about God's ability to guide and direct our thoughts to himself. It's the only way our thoughts are going to get there. And there's nothing better than our thoughts about God. But we need God to get us to thinking about God, Right? So that God is glorified even in our secret thought life. And we all have a secret thought life that we do not dare let anybody see. And so he, now he talks about ascending into heaven. Where can I go from your spirit? And he talks about ascending and descending. And these are metaphors, right? I think ascending are thoughts where I think I'm higher holy or that I've or, you know, Paul said, take heed, anyone that thinks he stands. So we may think we stand. And I think descending thoughts are where my thoughts are low and dark. And in those places where we think 
Either we're so high that we don't think we need God, even if we wouldn't articulate that, or so low that we think God will have nothing to do with us. There God is. We cannot get away from Him, either unintentionally or by deliberate folly. There's no getting away from Him in our mind. If we could never speak. If we could never do it. We could just live a sinful thought life. If we couldn't speak, if we couldn't hear, if we couldn't see, if we couldn't do all of those things, we could still have a very sinful, wretched thought life. How much more when we can add some technicolor to that, to our vision or hears. So we must learn and discipline ourselves, working with the Spirit of God to think these thoughts. To know what God knows exactly what we are thinking is a comfort because only God can get our mind right when it's gone quite wrong. And it does often. When we think too highly of ourselves or others, we think less of God. And when we think too low of ourselves or others, we likewise think less of God. For in each case, we have forgotten that God knows our thoughts. We've dethroned God in our minds when we think like that. Thinking wrongly about God has devastating consequences. So David, no matter where he goes in his thoughts, God is there. And again, it's good news for David. Well, bad news for you and I, or good news for you and I. God's hand, as he said, leads us. And his right hand holds us. So God's hand is upon me, and God's hand is upon you. And given the thoughts that go through our minds and God knowing them, we need his constant guiding and protecting hand upon us. He knows how to lead us to where our thoughts are going to be most fruitful, to where the deeds that follow those thoughts are going to be most kingdom-oriented. He brings us back when our thoughts are way off. Just like you don't, we were talking this morning a little bit, you don't have to be in this mountain or that mountain as Jesus was debating with the woman and John about where to worship God. We worship Him in spirit and truth. You don't have to be anywhere to have wrong thoughts about God. You just think about Him in error. And, and we know that God's right hand, typically in Scripture, is a euphemism for His power and His authority. And it's that power and authority that keeps us from disaster when our thoughts and the actions they lead to are far off. It's refreshing to think often that it is not any particular level of maturity that you've aspired to that keeps you from going back the wrong way again. That it is always and constantly God keeping us, preserving our minds, preserving our thoughts. He's got a spiritual formaldehyde going on in the brain. Then the 11th verse. Our darkness is not darkness to God. Our darkness is not darkness to God. He can see just fine. Let's face it, our minds can go in very dark places at various times. We may feel so very alone in our thoughts. I think at this point in the sermon, it makes sense to consider just how constant we live with thoughts that we wish were not there. And I'm going to assume every Christian lives with these. And I know every non-Christian does, it's a given. Because if you're outside of Christ, your brain is a big mass of dysfunction. And your mind is a wreck. And the scripture says things about you that ought to imperil you and ought to frighten you and ought to get you to think is it so? 
about me? For again, by whatever measure we consider to be accurate in terms of thousands of thoughts, we constantly have thoughts running through this three-pound chemical electrical compound we call the brain. And these are not always thoughts we would ever share with anyone. I think we all have, again, these thoughts. Things that come to us that we deal with in some way, but then just sort of throw back in the thought junk drawer. (laughs) Knowing that those thoughts are still there, but not able to part with them or get rid of them. In an article titled, Our Secret Thoughts, the writer offers the following, which bears consideration. I don't believe this is a Christian person, but very uh, insightful. We apparently live in an age of honesty and disclosure, but in truth, most of what we are means unacceptable and disguised to the world. Man, that one hit me right between the eyes, and I bet you it does you. We apparently live in an age of honesty and disclosure, but in truth, most of what we are remains unacceptable and disguised to the world. We simply cannot show too much of our real natures and retain the affections of others. As a result, we're lonely with... this This is so insightful, I think. We're lonely with parts of our characters we simply don't hear anyone else admitting to. And I think this is true in and out of the church. Not that it should be because it should be a very safe place. Uh, we, we should never be afraid of our thought life. But we are. The reality is we are. Now, perhaps you've never thought of your secret thoughts that way, that we can actually become lonely with parts of our character we simply don't hear anyone admitting to, but we do. And we can isolate ourselves in those thoughts. And we don't think we can trust anyone with the thoughts that often pain us or even terrorize us. And, and these may be doubts. They may be sinful thoughts. There may be thoughts we even consider blasphemous and shrink away at the thought of letting someone know we're struggling with those thoughts. And is it not a great comfort and consolation to know that God knows those thoughts? We need to understand this at more than just the sort of... We need to understand this at an existential level. We've got to get this through more than just our heads. That God literally is the person with us all the time. That literally is and knows our thoughts all the time and yet doesn't move. And I think the Spirit mediates that presence, though. I think it takes the Holy Spirit to mediate the presence of God to us in that place and time when our thoughts, again, just frighten us and even make us move away from God a little bit if such a thing were possible. We're not alone with them. And all that we have seen thus far in in the psalm applies to such thoughts. Understand that we who are in Christ are redeemed and our thought life is being redeemed Right? The scripture speaks of three things as a believer in terms of our salvation. We are saved, we are being saved, and we're going to be saved. Scripture uses those three interchangeably. We are saved, past tense, we are being saved, present, and we will be saved, future. There was a time before Christ for us when we were dead. That word means dead, by the way. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And... I love this. Once we were alienated and hostile in mind, comma, doing evil deeds. Alien and hostile in mind, doing alien. We were alien in our mind to God. We were alien to Him. Foreign, unattached, disconnected. And not only so, we were hostile. And we were enslaved to a thought life that thought wrong thoughts about God and so many other things and about so many other people. And that enslavement of thought led to deeds 
that further alienated our thought life because we became burdened and heavy with guilt and shame. This is what goes on in us. This is what goes on in our head, in our... But then in the divine act of love, revealed only in the gospel, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shone in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Our thought life, our thought process has been rescued from the domain of darkness and is now in the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That's where your head is now, whether you know it or not. Now, it indeed seems like we still experience some of the same things in thought that we did before in our former enslavement. But then we were not able to think about Christ. See, to think about his love, which reached down to us even when we were in those dark places of thought and deed. So, but these things that remain, they're just a residue. They're, they're just skin scars. They're, it's the image left on a screen or a TV after you shut it off. It stays on there for a little while. That's all it is. So what thoughts are you struggling with that God is willing to release you from by thinking about the gospel? Or where are we deceiving ourselves? We may say we trust in God for our daily bread and for our finances, but in the back of our mind, we're really taking comfort in the thought we have a credit card or credit cards. We tell ourselves we trust God with our children that he's given us, but in our thought life, we're actually taking a different comfort. Comfort that comes from them just not doing drugs or getting into trouble. So the comfort comes not in knowing that God is for us and not against us. Our comfort comes not from trusting and believing that God is, is uh, he's done everything for us and he's going to continue to do everything for us and he's before and after us and he hedges us up. So we're letting two thoughts that cannot coexist in our mind coexist in our mind. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of a resurrection that can take our thought life from that double-mindedness to a single undivided devotion to Christ, who's the way. God alone can do this, for as the psalmist David says here in 13, he formed our inner parts. Isn't it interesting that David chose these words? He doesn't say, you formed me. He says, you formed my inner parts, my inward parts. Now, he does, he does say something about knitting me together after, but first he says, you formed my inner parts. And whatever else this means, and it surely means very much, it surely includes this. God formed our thought process. The way I think, how I think, in the inner parts. So, the, the, the material and the, in, in the immaterial component of our thoughts. So, as I was, uh, not to get too deep in this, but you know that we're body and we're soul, or we're body and spirit, or body and not body, okay? There's more, again, there's more to us than just our biology, there's more to us than just our thoughts, okay? So, God created everything that goes into the exercise of thinking, and sort of delivery. God created that process, you know. God put that there. And what goes on up here when that's happening, that's too high to attain to. Uh, there, are, there are entire sciences built up around what goes on in here. And fortunately for secular science, they miss that part that's immaterial. And we can, we can sort of struggle with, well, what happens first? Does the, does the brain chemistry start producing thoughts? Or does the mind start producing thoughts and then the brain processes them? And I don't know how all that relates. Nobody knows how all that relates, really. 
There's lots of money to be made writing books pretending you know. There's lots of science out there that would try to tell you how it happens. But this is God's business. God knows how this works. So God formed all those processes and he formed the interplay between the biological and the, and the spirit. I mentioned earlier those fascinating things, again, about the brain. That part of our thinking process that requires the neurons and the electricity and the chemical bath that's in our skulls. But there's also a part of the thinking process, again, that's not biological and it, it can't be put under a microscope. Scripture calls the inner man. Or perhaps the heart. Jesus said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. So that's where the process originates. It's a condition of the heart. Not the physical organ. Not the different valves and all these other things going on here, okay? This is at the level of the human soul or the human spirit. It's not a chemical compound. It's not a neural pathway. I hope we have a scientist out there that's enjoying some of this terminology. There's so much, there's so much we could look at about God. As a result, again, the same author wrote this biology of sin. As a result of living separated from God, we have developed immoral desires, distorted drives, corrupt thought patterns, and sinful habits. The process of thinking isn't working right. It shouldn't surprise us, but we probably don't think about it often. And, and this is what reformed-minded Christians refer to as total depravity. Okay, it's not that we're as stinking rotten bad as we could be, but it's every part of our being is affected by sin, whether, again, it's body and soul, or body, soul, and spirit, or you know, however you, you know, look at those things. I don't want to have that debate. So then, sinful thoughts bring pleasure. They're not intended to. God didn't give us a brain for that. Our thought process is... Um, it's part of an entire uh, being system that's not properly functioning. Uh, 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 properly, bleh, doesn't work right. The thought of revenge is satisfying. It's not supposed to be. Thinking that we're better than anyone else gives us a sense of meaning and almost purpose. We almost derive some sense of purpose or, or fulfillment because we compare ourselves to someone. That's not what you thought before. None of this is okay. This is just the carnage of sin. This is bondage. And this is being held captive to Satan. Who in many ways is a synonym for sin. So our thought life is part of that inner person that is separated from God and needs to be gospelized. Needs to be gospelized so that our thought life is in line with the truth about God. So, why? So that we can serve. I mean, just thinking is not an end in and of itself. We don't just sort of sit around and think. Any fool can do that. It's so that our thoughts can be right, so we can serve right. So that we can be all that God made us for in love and service and joy in God and His church. And when Christ sets a captive free, a process is set in motion that cannot be undone. Among other things, we're given the mind of Christ. We can think thoughts as He thought, as He does think now. Christ is presently thinking. <laughs> and God who formed our inward parts and knit us together in the womb, knows exactly how to start working on all of us. So our thought life, I believe, is the primary target of God's redeeming power and grace. In fact, we are, according to Paul, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the result is a thought life consistent with thoughts God has for us, 
and wants us to have for him. Deeds and actions follow thoughts. Indeed, they must, though the thought process is squandered. So, service, prayer, ministry, all of these things hinge on redeemed thought process. Not just thoughts, but the whole process behind them. And as the psalm of the prayer of David began, so too does it end. David prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. Now, that's the English version and the King James version, and other translations read the same. The NIV, if they have that, or the New American Standard, says, know my anxious thoughts. And yet other translations read, know my concerns. And I don't think it matters, as they all involve the main idea. God invites David invites God to search him again. So, he, so if it's anxious thoughts, he says, let me see what I'm anxious about. Let me see what I'm anxious Show me what I'm anxious about. Show me what things I'm thinking. Look at my thought life, Lord, and give me your perspective on it. Peel back that scalp and take a look in there, Lord, and show me what's going on there. And I suppose because, once again, David knows enough of his own nature he knows he cannot run a kingdom without God's constant attention. And he knows he cannot fully understand his own thoughts. Nor can he recount them all. Now, we know much more about the complexities of the thought process than David could ever have known. Because he was living in a pre-scientific age. Where there was no knowledge of biology and chemistry. I mean, none of that existed then. But nevertheless, just as David thought at the glory of God and the stars without a telescope... So too is the art at God's presence within every thought, knowing nothing about neurons and synapses and things like that. So you and I don't need to know the physics of the brain either. Interesting as the subject is, what we need to understand is that like the rest of our being, we are both material and immaterial, physical substance and soul, spirit. Our whole being is going through a process known as sanctification. Sanctification is a massive undertaking. And only God can do it. Remember when the Twin Towers from New York fell? What a cataclysm that was. With dust everywhere and, and met and twisted and, and body parts that were never found. and just So, the process of cleanup and of rebuilding, the planning, the architecture, the surveying, the engineering is beyond my ability and probably yours to grasp. Well, the fall of humanity into sin is far greater still. The, the kind of divine cleanup and planning and architecture, all that. We can't possibly know what that project of sanctification or conforming us to the image of Christ, because that's what sanctification is. If the end goal isn't conformed to Christ, it's not sanctification. We don't know how it's undertaken. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us. It's, it's too high. We cannot attain it. We can sing, Behold our God. But that's as far as we can get. But God according to his unfathomable riches of wisdom and depth of knowledge, has reduced all of that complexity into one very simple yet profound image that is Christ crucified. It's the picture that's worth ten million words. It's more than a picture, of course, it's ultimate reality. It's a, it's a portrait painted with the three primary colors, wrath, grace, and love. And David entrusts his thoughts to the only safe place in the universe... And that is God. David says, Reveal to me anything in my thoughts that grieves you. Show me if there be any grievous way in me. 
Anything that interferes with our relationship. And then lead me in the way everlasting, or quite literally, lead me in the ancient path. That's what that word is. Lead me in the ancient path. The well-worn path of God's revelation, of trusting God, of covenant, submission, of obedience, of worship, of mutual affection. The ancient path. And one commentator said, the psalmist wants God to be his judge so that God may be his shepherd. He's not afraid to invite God into his thought life. He's not afraid to have God closely examine it, fully reveal it. The psalmist wants God to be his judge so that God may be his shepherd. Such is his experience of God and confidence in God that he does not fear a judgment that leads to punishment, but prays for a searching and testing that lead to pastoral care. Perfect love casts out fear. That doesn't mean that our love is perfect. What that verse means in John's letter is when love has accomplished its work completely, when it's perfected, then fear is gone. David has no fear of the judgment of God at this point. And sometimes we still secretly maybe fear the judgment of God or something. That he's, you know, still, still we hold back a little like... be true for us as well. We can, I think we must invite God to be our judge so that he can be our shepherd. Our judge is also our shepherd. And here are some categories of thought that we must invite God to judge and shepherd us. There's ten of them. You can probably come up with some of your own. What are our thoughts about God? This is for the believer and the unbeliever, by the way, because you're both out there. What are our thoughts about God's thoughts about our thoughts? <laughs> What do we think about the fact that God is thinking about our thoughts? What does that mean to us? What are our thoughts about the gospel? What are our thoughts about our spouse? About our children? About the brethren? About our neighbors? We have these thoughts all the time. What are our thoughts about politics? What are our thoughts about justice and fairness? What are our thoughts about the church? Thoughts lead to actions. Or thoughts lead to inaction. What are our thoughts about how much God loves the church and what that should mean to us? What are our thoughts about money? What sexual thoughts concern us? Here's a, maybe one of the biggest questions that could ever be asked. When Jesus said, what think ye of Christ? What think ye of Christ? In a sermon by that same title, Spurgeon preached, if there's no thought in your religion, there's no life in it. What think ye of Christ? Is it a pleasure to you to think of Christ? Do you naturally think of Christ just as naturally as we think of food without being reminded of it, seeing we live upon it, and therefore inward appetite render impossible to forget? Is our inner appetite for Christ such that we don't have to be reminded to partake of Christ? We have to be reminded. It's always there because the appetite's there. And all of these things, we think of them and, and think of them we must can fear, I'm sorry, we can without fear ask God to search us and lead us, to judge us and to shepherd us. Now, just something practical to close with. I want to offer you something very practical that I've done at times though you may think it odd, and that's because I'm odd a little. But perhaps I've mentioned in the past, I don't recall, right? But a lot of our thinking takes place while we're driving, doesn't it? Man, that's a place for the mind to race. 
Unless, of course, you're, you know, you're just blaring some music, drowning out thought, and the music you're listening to, maybe further corrupting your thought system. But if you're the kind of person that finds your mind all over the place, especially when driving, may I suggest you use street signs to focus your thought life. Let them be a little thought poke. Facebook has this little poke feature. Right? So you see a yield sign. Is there anything you're presently thinking about you need to submit to God? To just let go? Do you need to yield to another person in some conflict? Stop! It's a stop sign. Sometimes we just need to stop. Be still and know that He is God. See Sproul saying, what that literally means is just shut up and realize that I'm God. Farsi Sproul said it. And you can't argue with him. Proceed with caution. What a sign that is, right? In your life, you're presently facing an important decision. You see, this may sound a little silly on the level, but, but it isn't. This is very practical. I want you to use it. How about one way? Are your thoughts self-centered? Is the thoughts that you're indulging and caught up in just very self-centered? Dead end. Dead end. Time to abandon that thought or that idea racing through your head. Can there really be a fruitful outcome? So see if this little exercise does not bear some fruit for you. And lastly, ask God to show you that one person you can trust your inner thought life with. Don't let the enemy get you alone and trapped in thoughts he can beat you up and shame you with. Find one to share your burden with. Don't be that person lonely with parts of your character you simply don't hear anyone else admitting to. Now, unbeliever, God commands you to repent of your Christless thoughts and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. May He grant you grace to do what He commands. And household of faith, may the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Why? So that your thoughts about God are wonderful. And that God's thoughts about your thoughts about God are pleasing too. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Amen.